Good afternoon, and welcome to the first Alpheus T. Mason Lecture in Constitutional Law and Political Thought in 2005. Uh, Alpheus Mason was a longtime member of the Princeton Politics Department and a leading expert in constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and American political thought. And the James Madison Program, American Ideals Institution, is pleased to sponsor this lecture series in his honor. And we are grateful for the financial support of John P. Hansel of the class of 1948 and a former student of Professor Mason's uh, for making it possible. Um, this talk is also uh, being sponsored in the American, America's Founding and Future series, uh, which is concerned with examining America's founding and fundamental principles of American democracy and their application to current issues. Um, today, we're happy to welcome uh, Professor Nelson Lund, the Patrick Henry Professor of Constitutional Law and the Second Amendment at the School of Law at George Mason University. And he's undoubtedly one of the few professors uh, in the country to hold an endowed de chair dedicated to the study of the Second Amendment. And Professor Lund has actually, <laughs> he's actually written some on the Second Amendment as well and, and bears that honor quite proudly. Uh, he has a PhD in political science from Harvard University and a JD from the University of Chicago. He serves as a law clerk to Justice Sandra Day O'Connor as well as serving in the Department of Justice uh, and the White House. And he's written a wide variety of subjects, including constitutional law, uh, civil rights, and medical and legal ethics. Um, today, he will be speaking on Lawrence v. Texas, uh, the worst Supreme Court opinion in history, uh, question mark. Uh, there's a lot of competition for the honor of the worst Supreme Court uh, decision in history. Uh, so this is no small task uh, to settle on, on any particular case. And so please join me in welcoming Professor Lund. Uh, thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Um, Lawrence versus Texas invalidated a Texas statute that criminalized homosexual sodomy. As you all know, the U.S. Supreme Court found that the statute violated the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and went on to hold that statutes criminalizing heterosexual sodomy are unconstitutional as well. And so holding, uh, the court overruled Bowers versus Hardwick, a 1986 decision in which the court had upheld a ban on homosexual sodomy against the due process challenge. Now, today I want to suggest that Lawrence may be the worst opinion in the history of the court. My argument will be drawn largely from a law review article that I co-authored with John McGinnis, and I want to begin by emphasizing that we do not believe that Lawrence was the worst decision that the court has ever made. Although we do think it was decided incorrectly, it is the appalling opinion to which we chiefly object. Now, there are two reasons for treating the decision itself as a relatively minor event. Uh, first, the statute that was struck down was a bad law and a relatively unimportant law. Anti-sodomy laws are almost never enforced and the rare prosecutions for such, under such laws uh, are necessar necessarily capricious. So the direct effect of the court's decision is like, likely to be extremely limited and largely salutary. A few individuals will be spared the bad luck of getting a criminal conviction for violating laws that are manifestly out of step with prevailing sexual mores. Now, the second reason uh, not to get too excited about the decision itself is that it would have been quite easy to write a plausible-sounding legal opinion in validating the Texas statute. The court could have argued that the right of privacy created by the Griswold-Roe line of cases 
implies a right of consenting adults to engage privately in whatever sort of sexual contact they like. Contraception and abortion, the main subjects of that line of cases, are obviously not ends in themselves, and the privacy decisions all operate to abolish laws that create obstacles to sexual activity. The right to homosexual conduct seems to follow a fortiori from the right to abortion, because sodomy, unlike abortion, cannot be thought to result in any immediate and direct harm to third parties. An opinion confirming that the right of privacy decisions are at their core about the right to sexual freedom would have hardly stated more than what has been obvious for many years. Bowers, which purported to limit the Griswold-Roe line of cases to matters of family, marriage, or procreation, could have been overruled on the ground that it was inconsistent with the underlying rationale of the privacy decisions. But that is not what the Lawrence opinion did. On the contrary, the court issued a completely lawless and, in fact, a nearly incomprehensible legal opinion. In Lawrence, the Supreme Court stopped acting like a court and turned itself into something more like the Wizard of Oz. I want to try to defend what I think is a provocative conclusion today, beginning with a brief summary of the legal background. After describing the history of substantive due process, uh, which will require me, unfortunately, to talk about a few cases and use some case names, uh, I'll try to keep that to a minimum. But after doing that, I'll analyze a few key passages in the Lawrence opinion. Uh, I then want to conclude by explaining why, as a practical matter, not a legal matter, but as a practical matter, we really don't need anything like the substantive due process theory used in Lawrence in order to deal with bad laws like the Texas anti-sodomy statute. What we call substantive due process has no basis in the text of the Constitution, and no Supreme Court justice has ever even tried to present an argument for deriving it from the text. The doctrine is entirely the result of judicial, obedi- judicial disobedience of the Constitution, and that disobedience is the result of judicial hubris. Convinced that they know what justice is, and convinced that those who disagree with them must be interdicted, Many Supreme Court justices, though by no means all, have simply arrogated to themselves the authority to overrule what they think are unjust policies adopted by the people's elected representatives. Now, as a doctrine, substantive due process made its first appearance in Chief Justice Taney's opinion in Dred Scott, where it was used to protect the right of slaveholders to bring their peculiar form of property into jurisdictions where slavery had been outlawed. The next major eruption of substantive due process came during the Lochner era, around the turn of the 20th century. During this period, the the court concluded that due process protects certain substantive rights of property and certain substantive aspects of the right of contract. What the court did not do, however, was explain how these protections could be derived from the Constitution, nor did the court ever manage to develop a coherent doctrine that could be consistently applied. In 1938, Caroline Products completely repudiated the Lochner form of substantive due process and adopted a very modest and limited substitute. This approach, the Caroline Product approach, essentially limited substantive due process to the role of making the Bill of Rights or the substantive protections of the Bill of Rights applicable to the states. 
Now, there is, in fact, some evidence that the 14th Amendment was meant to make the substantive protections of the Bill of Rights apply to the states, albeit under the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment rather than through due process. So this Caroline Products approach was at least a defensible doctrine. It was also limited and somewhat disciplined by the fact that it was confined uh, by the text of the Bill of Rights. A quarter of a century later, in 1965, the court suddenly abandoned this moderate and restrained version of substantive due process in Griswold versus Connecticut, relying on one of the most notoriously outlandish arguments in all of constitutional law, the court invented a right to privacy that supposedly arose from emanations and penumbras in the Bill of Rights. Griswold held that this right of privacy protected a right of married couples to use contraceptives, and it purported to rely on the deep and traditional respect that our civilization has accorded to the privacy of the marital relationship. This respect for tradition soon turned out to be a convenient cover story for a very different kind of project. The court quickly extended the right of contraceptives to unmarried couples and then extended again to cover abortion in Roe v. Wade. And then it extended it yet again to cover contraception and abortions for children acting without their parents' consent. The right to privacy was by that point pretty well defined as protection from obstacles to uninhibited sexual activity. This, I think, was something completely new in American jurisprudence, in American history, liberation jurisprudence, something new in American history, liberation jurisprudence, or perhaps, more precisely, the constitutionalization of Hugh Hefner's playboy philosophy. It therefore came as a highly discordant note when the court upheld an anti-sodomy law in the Bowers case in 1986. The only reason to protect a right to contraceptives and abortion is to liberate people to engage freely in sexual activity. If sexual autonomy is so important that it justifies the sacrifice of unborn life, how could sexual contact between consenting adults, which has no immediate effects on any third party, possibly be unprotected? The Bowers Court left that question unanswered, but the opinion suggested that the court was very uncomfortable with substantive due process itself and was trying to halt or at least dramatically slow the expansion of the doctrine. In 1997, this inclination to go and sin no more seemed to harden into firm resolution in a case called Washington versus Glucksburg. There, the court upheld a statute that criminalized assisted suicide and adopted a very strict test for new applications of substantive due process. Under that test, a right must be carefully, must be carefully described and it must be proved by objective evidence to be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. Taken seriously, that test would put an end to the whole modern project of liberation jurisprudence. Of course, there's one little problem with the Glucksburg approach. It cannot be reconciled with Roe v. Wade and its progeny. That's why the Lawrence Court could easily have written an opinion explaining that it had to choose between Bowers and Glucksburg on the one hand or Roe v. Wade and its progeny on the other. Rather than make that fairly straightforward choice, however, the Lawrence Court embarked on a project even more ambitious than its previous development of liberation jurisprudence. 
not content with freeing American citizens from what the court regards as outmoded restraints on their sexual autonomy, the court decided to free itself from the restraint of law and indeed from the restraints of reason and logic. And that's what I want to try to illustrate with a, by discussing in a little bit of detail a few passages in the Lawrence opinion. Justice Kennedy's opinion begins with six sweeping sentences, which I'll read, and then I want to discuss each one of them. The opinion begins as follows. Liberty protects the person from unwarranted government intrusions into a dwelling or other private places. In our tradition, the state is not omnipresent in the home. And there are other spheres of our lives and existence outside the home where the state should not be a dominant presence. Freedom extends beyond spatial bounds. Liberty presumes an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. The instant case involves liberty of the person both in its spatial and more transcendent dimensions. Now, this paragraph, I think, is literally incomprehensible. And I think it's worth analyzing in some detail because it's easy to pass over it. Let's start with the first sentence. Liberty protects the person from unwarranted government intrusions into a dwelling or other private places. Is liberty a divinity like Nike or Eros? If not, the court's reification or personification of liberty accomplishes nothing except to dodge the obligation to say what exactly it is that protects against the unspecified, unwarranted intrusions. The second sentence is similarly high-flown and empty. The court writes, in our tradition, the state is not omnipresent in the home. Now, does this mean that the state dwells in some rooms of the house and not others? <laughs> what would that mean exactly? And if that's not what the sentence means, what does it mean? Sentence three says, and there are other spheres of our lives and existence outside the home where the state should not be a dominant presence. Now, maybe the author believes, quite incorrectly, that omnipresent means being a dominant presence. If he thought that, he should have checked the dictionary. But it's hard to be sure about much of anything here. Are our lives and our existence two different things? Who claims that the state should be a dominant presence in every sphere of our lives? And what is the point of denying such a far-fetched claim? Sentence four creates more mysteries when it declares freedom extends beyond spatial bounds. How exactly does freedom extend beyond spatial bounds? By spreading through space despite some kind of physical obstacles? By spreading beyond space itself into some other dimension? What dimension would that be? Now, maybe the sentence just means that freedom can entail more than an absence of physical obstacles to physical movement. But who in the world has ever denied such an obvious proposition? In sentence five, we finally seem to get the main point of the paragraph. The court writes, liberty presumes an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. Now, the idea seems to be that there should be limits on governmental intrusions on freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. But that is not what the sentence says. Instead, we have liberty presuming an autonomy that includes certain forms of freedom. Does that mean that liberty and freedom are different things and that both of them are different from autonomy? What would the differences be? As to an autonomy of self, is that just a pointless redundancy, or are we meant to contrast autonomy of self 
with autonomy of something other than self. What might such a thing be? In sentence six, we're back, the last sentence, we're back to what looks like complete gibberish. Kennedy writes, the instant case involves liberty of the person, both in its spatial and more transcendent dimensions. Now, transcendent dimensions certainly has a splendiferous ring to it, but I don't think the term has any obvious determinate meaning at all in this context. And that difficulty is aggravated by the author's assumption that there are degrees of transcendence among these transcendent dimensions. I don't think that anybody can say what that, what that means. Now, when the United States Supreme Court opens an opinion with a pronouncement whose meaning can only be guessed at, I think you might be tempted to just pass on, maybe chuckling or an embarrassed sigh or something. Um, but Justice Kennedy makes that very hard to do uh, because Lawrence repeats a similar flight of rhetoric from the opinion that he co-authored in the Casey abortion case. And here's the passage he quotes. It first appears in, in, the, in this abortion case, and now it's quoted in Lawrence. And here's what he says. These matters, i.e. marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, child-rearing, and education, involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime, choices central to personal dignity and autonomy, are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state. Now, the problems here are similar to the problems with Lawrence's opening passage. What exactly would be involved, for example, in defining one's own concept of existence, meaning, etc.? Americans surely have the right to define words in any way they want to define them, especially if they don't care to communicate with other people. But how would you define your own concept of these things? Maybe by adopting an opinion that other people don't share? Maybe, but people do that all the time without any help from the Supreme Court. In any event, whatever this heart of liberty might be, what does it have to do with the concluding sentence, which says, beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state? Now, I guess if the state could find a way to compel an individual to believe one thing or another, about such matters as existence or the universe, we are told that the beliefs could not define the attributes of personhood. Does this mean that the attributes would be determined or defined in some other way? Or that personhood would then have no attributes? Or that the person would have no personhood? What is personhood anyway? And how does it differ from its attributes? I don't know, and I don't think the author knows. There are three legal rather than mystical propositions that the court might be groping for in this passage, and I agree with them all. First, Supreme Court precedents protect the freedom to make certain choices about matters relating to sex. Second, people are free to think whatever they want to think about existence, the universe, meaning, the mystery of human life. And third, the First Amendment sharply limits the power of government to attempt to compel beliefs about these matters. But what could the, the second two propositions possibly have to do with the legality of governmental restrictions on abortion or sodomy? Aborting a pregnancy is not a thought or a belief, nor is an act of sodomy. 
Now, maybe the court has ascended to one of those more transcendent dimensions referred to in Lawrence's opening passage. And perhaps such distinctions as that between beliefs and acts have been transcended in that dimension. Unfortunately, there are indications that something like this may well have occurred uh, in this case. Lawrence utterly demolishes all those aspects of substantive due process through which previous courts had sought to give it an intelligible and law-like character. In Lawrence, nothing is left except bombast and the naked preferences of Supreme Court majorities. First, Lawrence does not even bother to say what standard of review it's purporting to apply, and it completely ignores Glucksburg, which had articulated just six years earlier the governing test for expansions of substantive due process protection. Without so much as citing Glucksburg, Lawrence abandons both of its core requirements, and the rejection of the Glucksburg test is not only unacknowledged and unexplained, but it is a total rejection. We can see how complete this rejection is by looking at Lawrence's purportedly legal explanation for its decision to overrule Bowers. The court comes closest to making a legal argument when it contends that the deeply rooted tradition of proscribing sodomy on which Bowers had relied did not support the holding in that case because sodomy laws traditionally applied to heterosexual conduct as well as to homosexual conduct. Bowers was treated as a, 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 a case involving only homosexual sodomy. And here's what the court in Lawrence says. I'm quoting, there is no long-standing history in this country of laws directed at homosexual conduct as a distinct matter. But how could that possibly be relevant? By the Lawrence court's logic, the traditional ban on prostitution must be quite compatible with a fundamental right to engage in homosexual prostitution or heterosexual prostitution for that matter, since the law has generally not singled out either of them as a distinct matter. That is really quite absurd. Equally absurd is Kennedy's critique of Bowers on the issue of a deeply rooted tradition. Whereas almost all previous substantive due process decisions had expressly or implicitly claimed that there was a deeply rooted legal tradition of protecting the conduct at issue in the case, Lawrence appeals instead to what it calls an emerging awareness reflected in our laws and traditions in the past half century. Now, an emerging awareness during the last half century turns the meaning of a deeply rooted legal tradition of protection just quite upside down. But even within this upside down world, the court fails to establish any such new tradition. It is true, as the majority observes, that in 1955, the American Law Institute failed to recommend criminal penalties for sexual relations committed in private, uh, thus proposing that the laws of every state in the Union be changed. And it's also true that some states subsequently changed their laws. Whatever the merits of the ALI's recommendation, however, or the motivation behind it, half the states still had laws against sodomy on their books 30 years later when Bowers was decided. A tradition that half the states had never adopted is a spoof. Now, these arguments, as bad as they are, are by no means the most corrosive and illogical aspects of Lawrence. Consider, for example, the court's most fundamental attack on Bowers. 
The real mistake in that case, according to Lawrence, was to ask whether the sexual conduct proscribed by the statute was protected by the Constitution. Now, you might ask what else could possibly have been the issue in the case. Here's what Kennedy says, and I'm quoting. To say that the issue in Bowers was simply the right to engage in certain sexual conduct demeans the claim the individual put forward, just as it would demean a married couple were it to be said marriage is simply about the right to have sexual intercourse. Now, this argument seems to assume that readers of the Lawrence opinion will be complete idiots. If a married couple challenged a statute forbidding them to have sexual intercourse, of course a court could obviously decide whether they had a right to do so or not without implying that marriage is about nothing other than the exercise of that right. Indeed, courts make decisions all the time about married people's rights to control their property and their children without implying that marriage is simply about property or simply about the care of children. This bizarre reformulation of the issue in Bowers is part of a broader move that alters the whole nature of substantive due process. What was once a relatively coherent, albeit mistaken, effort by the court to protect certain fundamental rights from legislative interference has now become a tool through which the court can simply impose on the nation its own visions of human freedom, the meaning of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Recall, for example, that the Texas statute at issue in this case, by its terms, applied only to homosexual conduct. Why does the majority reach out to make its holding applicable to anti-sodomy statutes that apply even-handedly to homosexuals and heterosexuals? The court's answer is that a failure to examine what it calls the substantive validity of the, te of the, of the Texas statute would somehow allow that statute's stigma to remain or in another formulation, a failure to overrule Bowers would demean the lives of homosexuals and invite some kind of discrimination against them. The court does not elaborate on the meaning of these cryptic statements, but it appears that, Cong that Lawrence may have created a constitutional right not just to engage in sodomy, but to enjoy the government's respect for engaging in sodomy. That might explain why it seemed so imperative to overrule Bowers, which at the very least evinced no admiration for homosexual sodomy or for those who engage in it. And it is the most obvious way to explain the court's reference, and here I'm quoting, to the due process right to demand respect for conduct protected by the substantive guarantee of liberty. What does it mean to have a constitutional right to demand respect for protected conduct like sodomy? If the court meant this seriously, it may presage a new jurisprudence in which governments are forbidden from doing anything that might convey disapproval of any sexual practices that five judges believe are somehow connected with efforts to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, in light of the court's apparent enthusiasm about the spiritual or mystical nature of sexual activity, this could mean that something resembling the playboy philosophy will become the official doctrine of the United States of America. It certainly points toward the abolition of all laws denying any of the benefits of marriage, including the dignitary benefits associated with the term marriage, to homosexual couples. 
and it probably also points toward the abolition of all laws that limit the number of people who can simultaneously be married to one another. And it's hard to see why laws against prostitution should survive, since this may be the only sexual outlet through which some people wish to or even can exercise the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Of course, there are other ways to interpret the sloppy, self-indulgent language in the Lawrence opinion. Some of them are much less radical than this, but some may be even more radical. Nowhere in the Lawrence opinion does the court so much as entertain the possibility that state legislatures could have any valid reason for proscribing sodomy in general or homosexual sodomy in particular. Furthermore, the court comes very close to implying that one obvious basis for such proscriptions, a desire to discourage behavior considered immoral by the majority, is inherently illegitimate. Now, even if we leave aside other possible rationales for the Texas statute, such as public health or promoting the institution of marriage, how is the desire to discourage putatively immoral behavior really different in any way marked out by the Constitution from the paternalistic desire to discourage other forms of putatively dangerous or self-destructive behavior? When the government outlaws conduct that it regards as risky or unhealthy, such as the recreational use of drugs, or working long hours in a bakery, or driving a motorcycle without a helmet, it is making a moral decision that assigns a higher value to health and physical safety than to the spiritual insights that some people have said they get from LSD, or the moral satisfaction that some people get from following a strict work ethic, or the mystical exhilaration of flirting with danger on the open road. Unless the court were to distinguish without any constitutional justification between the different moral judgments reflected in different forms of paternalistic legislation, it's hard to see how any regulatory statute could survive unless it is demonstrably necessary to prevent immediate injuries to people other than those who want to engage in the conduct. Now, I should stress that I don't believe the court has actually embraced any such radically libertarian interpretation of the Constitution. In the end, the Lawrence opinion doesn't tell us much of anything about what the court will decide in the future. Whatever new rights the court may find or refuse to find among what Justice Kennedy calls the components of liberty in its manifold possibilities, whatever that means, Lawrence will stand primarily for the proposition that due process jurisprudence has transcended the bounds of rational discourse. Now, even if you agree with me that Lawrence in particular and substantive due process in general have no basis in the Constitution, you might argue that the practical effects of the doctrine have been sufficiently salutary to justify a little judicial lawlessness. I'm confident that a full cost-benefit analysis would demonstrate that this view is mistaken, uh, but I'll confine myself here to a few suggestive remarks. First, what are the benefits of modern uh, due process? What have they been? The benefits that are claimed for this doctrine consist primarily in an expansion of human freedom, or I think more precisely, in facilitating the emergence of new and beneficial social norms. Some of the court's decisions in the area of sexual autonomy are clearly consistent with a broad emergent social consensus. 
And I'm willing to assume that the suppression of a few isolated deviations from that consensus, like Connecticut's anti-contraceptive statute and the enforcement of the Texas anti-sodomy law, has been socially beneficial. But those benefits are really quite small. There really has been a sexual revolution in America, but that revolution has had almost nothing to do with judicial decisions on matters like contraception and sodomy. The one area in which the court may really have had big effects, of course, is abortion. But nobody can claim that this is an area in which the court's position reflects or has generated anything like a settled consensus. And the net social value of the court's abortion jurisprudence, to put it mildly, is open to very serious question. In any event, whatever one thinks of the sexual revolution, it is surely, is surely the case that social norms do change and should change. But the Constitution already provides a mechanism for facilitating beneficial changes, and that mechanism has nothing to do with substantive due process. What I'm talking about is competitive federalism. Under the Constitution's design, the federal government possesses only limited powers, leaving to the states most of the responsibility for setting social policy. Representative legislatures throughout the country can make the hard decisions about the proper line to draw between liberty and license. These legislatures are subjected to considerable market discipline because constitutional law protects free movement and the free flow of information among the states. Individuals can and do take advantage of this freedom, and state governments respond both to changing preferences among their citizens and to the threat of emigration. What's more, as the costs of transportation and information have fallen, geographic mobility has increased. Far from being an 18th century leftover, federalism has become an ever more effective device for promoting the kind of interjurisdictional competition that can promote the appropriate expansion of human freedom. Now, this argument is not simply abstract or theoretical. The sexual freedom that has attracted so much solicitude from the Supreme Court has gotten a much bigger boost from the operation of our federal system. Individuals who have felt oppressed by local sexual regulations, not to mention by the social mores that even the Supreme Court has not yet, I say not yet, pretended to dictate, have migrated to more tolerant jurisdictions like New York and San Francisco. There they have publicized their lifestyle and used the media to promote the loosening of sexual inhibitions, which they contend will enhance individual happiness without posing a threat to social stability. Lawrence can probably have only a very small accelerating effect on a process of decriminalizing sex between consenting adults that's taking place independently. Indeed, Lawrence itself seems implicitly to concede this point when it emphasizes that state legislatures have steadily been repealing their anti-sodomy statutes and that prosecutions for sodomy are exceedingly rare. Compared with substantive due process, moreover, competitive federalism reduces the risks of error. It does not require judges to determine the right line between liberty and license through armchair analysis but instead provides feedback information on a range of possible balances as states experiment with different social policies. Its flexibility permits incremental change in response to changing social conditions, new information, and the preferences of citizens. Federalism also reduces the cost of correcting errors by making it much easier to change direction 
when appealing new norms prove to have unforeseen drawbacks. Creating a universal constitutional rule deprives the nation of the sober second thoughts that competitive federalism permits. Now, the Supreme Court's failure to recognize that competitive federalism will bring most of the benefits of substantive due process without its drawbacks, I think, is a natural, a natural consequence of judicial hubris. Courts have a comparative advantage in the analysis of legal texts and precedent. They have no comparative or absolute advantage in making uh, policy judgments about the proper line between liberty and license. And our political system already provides better mechanisms for making those judgments. But if the Supreme Court limited itself to protecting this system that the Constitution established, there would be this one great disadvantage. The justices would not get the credit for the good results. Accordingly, it should be no surprise that many members of the court have simply assumed that the Constitution must include a provision that gives them the discretionary power to impose their personal visions of justice and what they think of as the more transcendent dimensions of liberty. This is also the power to burnish their reputations with the elites with whom they socialize and who will largely determine their historical reputations. Unlike the policy decisions of state legislatures, the Supreme Court's exercise of discretion under substantive due process is not subject to any competitive discipline. If a decision of the Supreme Court has bad consequences, its national scope prevents citizens from creating, from creating pressure for change by moving to a jurisdiction that follows a different rule. Moreover, the doctrine of stare decisis will protect norms from judicial overruling even if they have bad consequences. Thus, it's very likely that the effects of a freewheeling jurisprudence like that exemplified Lawrence, by, by Lawrence will on balance be harmful. Most of the good effects would emerge from the democratic process anyway, and the bad effects will be difficult and costly to eliminate. The court's increasingly casual imposition of elite views about the appropriate content of constitutional rights may also have the cost of alienating the people from the Constitution. If the Supreme Court doesn't take the Constitution or law itself seriously, why should anybody else? And if the Constitution is not actually our unifying law, why should the people treat the constitutional order with anything more than benign neglect? Many Supreme Court decisions have had worse immediate consequences than Lawrence, but few decisions in its entire history are so poorly reasoned, and almost none seek so overtly to maximize future ju judicial discretion. Because Lawrence represents the final dissolution of meaningful legal constraints on substantive due process, it's likely to generate bad policy results in the future, and it will certainly undermine the court's role as an institution that is anything more than a reservoir of political discretion for whatever forces can control it. The one possibly happy consequence is that the transparent emptiness of, of Lawrence's analysis may cause a rethinking of the trends in substantive due process that have estranged the court from anything that resembles the rule of law. Unfortunately, the better prediction may well be that Lawrence's style of judicial hubris will prove contagious and that other doctrinal areas will succumb to its virulent lawlessness. Thank you very much.
Thank you. We have time for questions. Uh, it's a, a Mazin program tradition to uh, have the first question or two uh, posed by a student. So if there are any student questions, uh, we'll welcome those uh, first. Uh, but I won't be carding, so I'll rely on uh, some self-policing self uh, for this. So, James. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, I, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a very perceptive question, and, uh, and, and, it, and I, I think what's behind your question is um, a very unfortunate phenomenon in a lot of uh, d discussions of federalism, which is that people uh, very often find uh, that uh, federalism is good when they don't like what the federal government wants to do. And then they find reasons why the federal government really needs to do the things that they want to do. And it's very typical, common, I'd say, in discussions of federalism for people to be quite hypocritical. They can always find a federalism argument either in favor of the states or in favor of the federal government that supports the policy outcome that they happen to favor. Now, uh, the assisted suicide uh, statute in Oregon is one that I think is quite a pernicious statute. Um, and I've written some stuff about this. I've really actually given this some thought. It's quite a pernicious statute. Uh, I, I think it was a big mistake on the part of the people of Oregon uh, to, uh, to enact this statute. Um, and I, but I absolutely agree that uh, their right to do so should be protected uh, by the principles of federalism. There is no federal interest. Um, almost all of the bad effects, which I fit believe will, will come eventually to light from this statute, are confined to the people of Oregon. It should be up to them to change their law uh, when, they, uh, when, they, when they come to see what I think is the light. Or if not, maybe I'll turn out to be wrong, and, and, and they'll turn out to be right, and the, and the country will eventually uh, uh, grow to accept this. Um, I don't think that will happen. Maybe it will. I don't know. Uh, if I were on the Supreme Court, I wouldn't think that I should just impose my my uh, uh, my personal beliefs or predictions about that. So yes. Do you want to pick? Uh, first of all, I'm good. <laughs> Always looking for converts. <laughs> Yes, all the ones that are actually in the Constitution. So now, if, if you're asking, if you're asking, I'm sorry. Were areas like slavery and miscegenation out of bounds and better decided by states? Well, let me try to distinguish because your question's a little ambiguous, and I think it's important to distinguish two different questions that, that could be behind what you're saying. One is. What do I think the Constitution says? The Constitution clearly authorizes the federal government and the federal judiciary to protect certain individual rights from interference by the states. And 
my opinion is that the Supreme Court should just enforce those and no others, enforce the ones that are in the Constitution, not the ones that are not in the Constitution. Now, a different question is how would I write the Constitution? Would I write the federal Constitution in such a way, if I were writing a Constitution, in such a way that included certain rights and not others? And the answer is yes. And some of the ones that I would write into the Constitution are, in fact, there. And I would probably make some changes. Um, I would probably make some changes. Um, but those are two different questions. As far as what I think the Supreme Court should do, I think it should apply the Constitution and not something else. Is that responsive? Um, yeah, just for the sake of time, I left out that part of the opinion, and, and, and so I'm glad somebody asked about it. Um, this is another particularly outrageous aspect of the Lawrence opinion, um, which is that Justice Kennedy's opinion uh, apparently relies on foreign law, specifically uh, law of the European Union, um, and apparently, if you actually read the words of the opinion, uh, apparently, he thinks that uh, judicial decisions in Europe are entitled to more deference than prior United States Supreme Court opinions, let alone the United States Constitution. It's really quite remarkable. Now, um, I don't think that he or the court could possibly believe uh, what they actually said. I can briefly tell you what happens in the opinion. Uh, prior to Bowers, uh, the court in the European Union had uh, held that an Irish anti-sodomy law was uh, illegal. And uh, then uh, Bowers was decided in the United States, and, uh, and then Justice Kennedy says, now, what happened in Europe? They didn't follow the Bowers precedent. They followed their own precedent. Now, that's a real shocker, isn't it? That's a real shocker. Uh, but but, but what's, what, what's even more shocking is what Justice Kennedy uh, wants to make of this. Here's what he says after, after, after pointing this out. He says, the right of the petitioners, uh, that's the defendants in the criminal case, the right the petitioners seek in this case has been accepted as an integral part of human freedom in many other countries. There has been no showing that in this country the governmental interest in circumscribing personal choice is somehow more legitimate or urgent. Now that seems to, seems to mean seems to say that when a lot of other countries have, have, have decided they don't need anti-sodomy laws, we can't have it either unless we have some showing of peculiar conditions in the United States or something. Now, of course, they couldn't possibly believe that because, of course, there are lots of other countries that still have the anti-sodomy laws, and they're just ignored. Um, so I think it's probably nothing more than a kind of decoration uh, for the opinion uh, you know, you feel free to kind of look around the world and, you know, kind of like at a cocktail party, you know, you go and you look, for your, look around for your friends. You know, you look around the world, oh, here's somebody that agrees with me, that's a good precedent. <laughs> Saudi Arabia, they got something different to ignore them. Um, but there is an increasing trend in the last few years in uh, Supreme Court opinions citing uh, foreign law, and there does seem to be some 
interest, some more serious interest in the court on the part of the justices, and some of them have made speeches about this and so on too, of kind of learning more from the courts of other countries and kind of aiming at some kind of, I don't know, maybe some kind of universal human jurisprudence uh, that will be the Constitution of the United States. I think it, it really, it, it, they can't have quite yet reached what they seem to have said in Lawrence, but there are indications that they are headed in the direction of, you know, maybe that's the transcendent dimensions they have in mind is, you know, the, the, the world, uh, that they'll be cosmopolitans in the literal sense of citizens of the world and so on, and the abolition of national boundaries and so on. I don't know. We don't know where it's going. Do you believe that the Supreme Court justices have any ability to try to write the minority rights through either the 19th Amendment or through Justice Goldberg's argument? I remember the 19th Amendment. The Ninth Amendment uh, has gotten uh, a surprisingly uh, amount of kind of what I think is quite misguided uh, interest in the last few years. Um, for those of you who don't have the Constitution memorized, uh, the Ninth Amendment says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, all that says is that the fact that the Constitution enumerates certain rights shall not be interpreted to mean that there are no other rights except the ones that are enumerated. It doesn't say what these other rights might be. It doesn't say where they come from. It doesn't say how they're to be protected. Now, there is a whole school of thought that has tried to read this to mean something far beyond what it says and to interpret it to mean, well, the courts are supposed to enforce a vast number of unenumerated rights, uh, often referred to uh, as uh, natural rights. Um, and uh, I think the text just won't bear that out. Um, and when you look at the legislative history, which is what these uh, advocates of kind of Ninth Amendment expansionism uh, try to do, when you look at the whole uh, body of the, of the legislative history, uh, it, it seems to me it comes very clear to me that the Ninth Amendment is simply a companion to the Tenth Amendment. And I won't bore you by reading the Tenth Amendment, but basically the Tenth Amendment says the powers given to the federal government are its only powers. It doesn't have any except the ones that, it, that we give it, the Constitution gives it. The Ninth Amendment says that the rights protected by the Constitution are not the only rights you have. Now that really makes absolutely perfect sense. When you think about the fact that governmental powers and individual rights are correlative. If a particular government lacks the authority to control your behavior, then you have the right not to have that behavior controlled by that government. But when you remember that the Tenth Amendment and the Ninth Amendment were part of the Bill of Rights of the Federal Constitution, one of the rights retained by the people, remember the Ninth Amendment talked about the rights retained, other rights retained by the people. One of the rights retained by the people is the right to govern themselves as they see fit in their own states, except to the extent that the federal government has been given, affirmatively given, the power to interfere with that right to govern themselves. So I think the Ninth Amendment is, uh, is, is, is really an expression of the doctrine of competitive federalism not a license for judges to kind of, you know, look into galaxies far, far away and come up with new rights. Uh, all the way in the back. Going back to your concept of competitive federalism, you've spoken about the legislative 
I think I think the I think the uh, the state of Massachusetts has every right to legalize gay marriage if if if, if they want to. I don't think the Constitution has anything in it to prohibit Massachusetts from doing just that. Now, the next question that arises is, do other states have to recognize gay marriages or same-sex marriages uh, solemnized in Massachusetts or other states that may, may, that may legalize this in the future? Um, I don't think they have to do so. Uh, a lot of states have uh, recently passed statutes and constitutional amendments uh, trying to protect themselves uh, against, you know, having same-sex marriages recognized in their own state because of it was solemnized in, in Massachusetts. Um, that's going to raise a whole series of additional constitutional questions uh, because there will be strong advocates for the proposition that the full faith and credit uh, clause uh, requires other states uh, to recognize those, uh, those marriages or that the 14th Amendment will require other states to recognize those marriages. Um, I think that, that, that uh, those arguments are uh, invalid. Uh, that doesn't mean the courts won't accept them, though. And I think the danger that the courts will accept those kinds of arguments is sufficiently grave that I actually am in favor of a constitutional amendment to protect competitive federalism, a constitutional amendment protecting the right of states to refuse to recognize marriages that are of a type that are against their own public policy and to prevent uh, the courts or Congress, for that matter, uh, from uh, requiring them to do so. Uh, I don't know how you quite go about that in this case. Um, you know, uh, the whole question of dicta versus holding is one that, that and I don't know if you're a lawyer, but, but, but that, 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 that we lawyers have, 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 you know, spent a lot of time beginning in the first year of law school trying, trying to sort that out. Um, so, uh, uh, I mean, they write opinions for a reason. Um, may not always be clear to them what the reason for writing an opinion is. Uh, but my critique is of the opinion. Um, and, of course, if I had a client uh, whose uh, interests were inconsistent with, 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 the, with the Lawrence uh, opinion, I would certainly argue that practically everything in there is dicta um, and not binding. Um, but, and, and maybe I could persuade a sympathetic lower court to agree with me. Um, but the whole distinction between... Uh, dicta and holding is one that's, I think, much less analytically clear uh, than, uh, uh, than, than is sometimes supposed. I'm sorry? <laughs> no, you know. Well, um, sometimes you wonder why we academics do anything. Um, uh, you know, uh, do, I, do I think that, that, that my views are, are, are liable to persuade Justice Kennedy? No, I don't. Um, um, I think, though, that, that 
if we as citizens um, take the Constitution seriously, then we ought to take Supreme Court decisions and Supreme Court opinions seriously, and we ought to try to, you know, make some, have some understanding of which of them are consistent with the Constitution, which of them are not. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a bad habit, I think, that, again, many lawyers uh, fall into. Uh, for example, not even reading the dissents in cases, because who cares? That's not the law, right? You just read the opinion, try to mind read uh, what's behind it, um, and, then, and then try to figure out how to get around it if it's in your client's interest or how to invoke it if it's in your client's interest. But in any case, we kind of take, kind of sometimes tend to take these Supreme Court opinions as though they were, came from God, that they were gospel. And it's our, it's our job to kind of figure out what's behind them and how it's useful to us, right? Uh, well, that's certainly one way of, of treating Supreme Court opinions. I, I don't think it's the, the only useful way. Um, I think if, if we kind of step back and think of, and, and think of our roles as a self-governing people, um, then I think we have some kind of obligation or at least interest in distinguishing Supreme Court opinions that are really outrages and insults to the dignity of human reason, like this one, uh, from, from other, dis other opinions with which we may disagree, we may find defective in various ways, but this one seems to me quite unusual, and it is just an insult to human reason. Uh, over here. You mentioned the importance of reading dissents. I was curious if the majority opinion had been Justice O'Connor's concurrence, how your talk today might have been different. Uh, well, it would have been quite different. Um, and again, I, I, I left that out in the interest of time, but I'll, I'll kind of briefly talk about Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion. Uh, she joined, she was relatively new on the court, she joined the opinion of Bowers in 1986. And uh, she would have decided this case differently. Rather than relying on substantive due process, she would have decided as an equal protection case. And uh, she did not have an entirely implausible argument. Um, I think it was wrong, but let me try to describe what her argument was. Um, she would have relied on two fairly recent equal protection decisions. And you, again, you have to remember this, the Texas statute uh, applied only to homosexual sodomy. So she, would have, she goes back to these two cases. One is a case, I think, back in the 70s called Marino. And this was a case where the, 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 the Congress had passed a statute which purportedly uh, was an attempt to uh, reduce the incidence of fraud in the food stamp programs. And it put certain limits on the ability of people to get food stamps when they were living in, in homes with unrelated individuals. Well, there was legislative history suggesting that at least some members of Congress uh, really were in favor of this because they didn't like hippie communes, free love communes and all of this, and that was very offensive and bad guitar music and all of that. And so they passed this statute as an, an attack on hippie communes. And the Supreme Court struck down the statute um, arguing that it was inherently illegitimate uh, for a statute to be targeted at a particular group because it was politically unpopular. Now that precedent was then invoked in 1996, 95 or 96, in a case called Romer versus Evans, which involved an amendment to the Colorado Constitution. And that amendment had forbidden the state legislature or local municipalities and so on from enacting special laws protecting homosexuals, but left the legislature and the municipalities free 
to pass laws giving special protections uh, for other minority groups. That was struck down, again, largely on the ground that it was illegitimate to target politically unpopular groups. Now, what O'Connor says in Lawrence is that you can use those precedents to strike down this statute, but she has to expand those precedents in one logically small way because the prior two statutes uh, had dealt with laws that were directed against people who were not engaging in criminal behavior. This statute made that behavior criminal. And so she has to make a change in what she says or, or an extension of these prior cases. And she says not just that, 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 the, that the law is directed against people who are politically unpopular, but conduct that's morally disapproved of. So this small step in logic, I think, makes her opinion kind of not the shocker that the Lawrence opinion is. It's not a big logical leap. If you think about it, I think it, it, it's a small logical leap that has such enormous practical consequences that it really is, is in itself a kind of radical, might have really radical effects. But as a work of legal analysis, I think it's not, it's, it's much more plausible than, than, than what we got in, in, in the Kennedy opinion. Well, again, this goes back to the question that, that was asked earlier. There are absolutely some rights that I think must be protected by the federal Constitution, and uh, I, I believe that, that the Constitution gives examples of slavery. Slavery should be outlawed by the federal Constitution. Yes, I agree it should. Um, there, are other, there, are other, there are other rights, the, the racial discrimination. We found out as a historical matter that competitive federalism didn't work for the issue of racial discrimination, and therefore the Constitution needed to be changed, and it was changed to deal with that problem. I think that's perfectly appropriate. If, if, if it hadn't been changed, then I don't think the Supreme Court should do the changing. I think the people should do the changing as they did. Um, now, there are other uh, rights which... Uh, are in the Constitution, which we might have more of a debate about whether they're really necessary, whether they're really important. Um, and I could talk about particular things, but the, the fundamental point is, yes, I think there are some that the federal government, we know from experience, needs to, needs to, needs to control the states. That doesn't mean everything. It doesn't mean that the federal government needs to make all the decisions about the proper uh, relationship between liberty and license. 
Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that the Supreme Court should be amending the Constitution when the people have declined to do so through the Article 5 mechanism. Uh, all the way in the back. Well, of course, it's, it, it, it's true that, that, that uh, nothing that anybody in the world does has zero effects on anybody else in the world. Um, that, 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 of course, is true, that there are going to be some effects. I mean, there are some effects of the laws in Mexico on the United States. Um, there are some effects of the laws of Bolivia on the United States. Of course, there are going to be some effects. Um, uh, and I think on kind of certain fundamental issues, um, I don't see any reason why when a settled consensus of, uh, of the people uh, decides to, to, to suppress individual variation among the states, uh, that that's necessarily bad. Slavery is one example. If we had an absolutely settled consens national consensus about abortion and the people amended the Constitution to deal with that one way or the other, uh, that might be appropriate. Um, so I think the, the answer to your question is, 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 is not that, that, that I have the ability to decide which of these things is sufficiently confined that it should be, that, that, that the competitive federalism should be allowed to, to uh, operate, or I should decide which should be decided by a national consensus. Um, I just don't assume that I have the wisdom to make all these decisions, um, which, is, which is why uh, I, I come back to uh, the, the, the fundamental principle of letting the people decide through our constitutional mechanism, which is Article 5 of the Constitution, which says how the Constitution can be amended. Uh, Bush v. Gore. Yes. Um, don't get me started. <laughs> I'm one of, I believe, only two law professors uh, in the entire nation who has argued that that case was uh, correctly decided. Um, only two. Um, and I was first. <laughs> um, uh, the majority opinion in Bush v. Gore in my, my view, was a correct application of precedent. Now, the precedents on which it relied were wrong, but it was a correct application of precedent. And the unbelievable abuse to which uh, the justices of the Supreme Court have been subjected as a result of writing a very straightforward and easily defensible uh, opinion is uh, really, I think, been quite destructive. And um, I'm hesitant to speculate too much, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if historians someday found out that some of the uh, uh, some of the unfortunate adventurism in the last few years, of which Lawrence versus Texas is an example, uh, it may turn out that that was not entirely unrelated. 
to the unbelievable abuse to which the Supreme Court was subjected when it followed the law. What reward did they get? What reward did they get? Put yourself in the position uh, of, 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 the, uh, of the members of the Supreme Court, especially the so-called swing votes, Kennedy and O'Connor. In, uh, in, in Bush v. Gore, they had a choice. They could, and, and they had to know, they had to know in advance something of what was going to happen. If they disregarded the law, they were going to be hailed as heroes for not interfering in the election. If they applied the law, they were going to be denounced as, you know, political manipulators and so on, which is just what happened. They chose the most courageous course. They chose the more courageous course, which, you know, I'm not going to get real excited about giving them a lot of praise for that. I thought that's what they had life tenure for. Uh, so, you know, so they could, you know, take the more courageous course in these things. Why else do we have judicial independence? But the fact that almost nobody has stood up to defend them after they did take, did take the correct, legally correct and more courageous course must be a little bit dispiriting. I mean, you must get kind of tired of being abused and, 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 and accused by prominent Harvard law, uh, Harvard law professors of, 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 of having uh, – uh, uh, violated your oath of office and engaged in corruption. I mean, the, the charges of corruption against the justices were just quite amazing. Completely no evidence for them. Um, completely phony arguments that these law professors came up with. What's the percentage in that, you know? Much easier to issue an opinion like Lawrence v. Texas, for which they have been widely celebrated. Again, I'm in the minority here. Almost nobody has denounced this, this opinion. Mostly people have been celebrating it and urging the court, let's have some more. Let's have some more of this stuff. <laughs> and this is both from the right and the left, by the way. In, in, in Bush v. Gore, conservatives were almost, were almost uh, as bad as the people on the left in attacking the court. The conservatives often say, well, they like the result. Uh, but they thought it should have a different rationale, and they denounced the majority's rationale as wrong and lawless and all this stuff. So both the right and the left attacked the majority opinion of Bush v. Gore. Similarly, in Lawrence v. Texas, they're now being praised from both the right and the left. Libertarians are very, very excited and happy uh, about the decision in Lawrence v. Texas. That's a, that's a better deal if you care what people say about you than just, you know, following the law. Uh, all the way in the back. Yes. Which you refer to as an example of substantive due process. Yes. The sense
Uh, yes, you are, but l let me, let me, it's, it's, no, it's, it's very easy to explain. You are missing something. Um, but, but first, uh, with respect to the, to the formalism of, of just Chief Justice Taney's opinion of Dred Scott, um, you know, that would be a lot easier to swallow if it weren't for Justice Curtis's absolute demolition of every legal argument that Chief Justice Taney made, absolute demolition, unanswered by Chief Justice Taney. So, on the issue of diversity jurisdiction, I believe, and we don't have time to get into the details, obviously, now, I believe that Justice Curtis just completely demolished Chief Justice Taney. Um, but there was a second issue in the case, and that's the due process issue, um, which is not, not, it's a different argument. There's a, two, there's several arguments, but there's two main arguments that, um, that Taney relies on. And the second one is a substantive due process argument. He doesn't use that term. There is a due process clause in the Fifth Amendment. That's what he's relying on, not the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, is, and it, that has to do with the constitutionality of the Missouri Compromise, which had outlawed slavery in the territories. And, of course, Dred Scott's claim uh, to freedom uh, and claim to be a citizen who could invoke the diversity jurisdiction depended on his having gone into the upper Louisiana Territory and been freed, become a free man by operation of law. And the Supreme Court... Uh, held that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. One of the arguments was, and it's a very, very short passage in Chief Justice Taney's opinion, that, and I don't have the, I don't have the, I don't have it memorized. But what he says is that taking away a man's property for no other reason than that he has traveled into a new jurisdiction forms no part of due process. So he is clearly giving substantive effect to the due process clause, and that's why I say that that was the first, uh, the, the first significant uh, uh, example of the use of substantive due process. He doesn't use the term substantive due process. That doesn't come into use until much later. But he gave substantive effect uh, to, to, the, to the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, which certainly did exist at the time. And, again, Justice Curtis points out, where did you come up with this? I mean, what are you talking about? Um, and there's a number of reasons why it couldn't possibly be correct. And just, Chief Justice Taney makes no reply, no reply whatsoever, as no one on the Supreme Court has ever made any reply, any reply to the people who keep pointing out that the Due Process Clause is a procedural provision. It is not a substantive provision. And they just rely on precedent or just ignore the question. Uh, it started with Chief Justice Taney been going on ever since by those who favor that doctrine. Brad? Uh, I'd like, I'm grateful if you could uh, say a few words about uh, sorry to cite the obligation of the court to abide by precedent. Uh, your your uh, aside about uh, uh, Bush v. Gore being In, in Bush v. Gore and Lawrence. Yeah, Bush v. Gore, I'm sorry. Bush v. Gore. If the, if the, if the obligation of the court is to follow the Constitution, which were your earlier remarks, and there's something wrong with the precedent upon which Bush v. Gore was based, wouldn't the truly courageous path have been to overrule the precedent 
or how flawed was the precedent? Oh, the precedent was completely flawed. It was just one of these Warren Court made up kind of things. Um, um, but um, it was also uh, an extremely, uh, uh, extremely important and now well-settled precedent from 1964. A huge amount of law has grown up around this. Um, and I don't have, you know, a one or two sentence answer to the question of uh, when should the court overrule its precedents. Um, I think I just don't have a one or two sentence answer to that. Um, let me, uh, I think in, in Bush v. Gore, nobody, nobody suggested uh, overruling this large, large body of law. Um, and uh, they really couldn't have done so in this case anyway. Uh, because the issue was somewhat different, so all they could have done was kind of given indications that they were intending to overrule or starting to move towards overruling it. Um, and I think that would have, it, it would have been a very strange thing to do in a case where the precedents are clearly applicable and you've got something like a presidential election at stake. Oh, well, now we'll kind of think about overturning this landmark decision uh, from, from the mid-60s and all the, all the things. That would have been a very strange thing to do, and nobody, nobody advocated that at the time. But let me, let me see if I can kind of get at your question a little bit differently by, by asking myself the question, well, what, the, what should the court do now after Lawrence, right? We do have these competing lines of precedent. We've got the kind of, uh, we still have Glucksburg on the books. Uh, we have the whole Roe v. Wade line of precedent. And what should the court do? Um, I think that, that substantive due process has no basis in the Constitution at all. Uh, it never should have been invented. Um, and we'd be better if it hadn't been invented. But that doesn't necessarily imply for me that the court should simply wipe it all away at one stroke. There's a huge, huge body of law. And um, my own view after thinking about it and discussing it some length with my co-author on, this, on this, this article that we did is that what the court should do is return to Glucksburg, a um, 1997 case, which put these very strict limits on new substantive due process kind of discoveries, um, limited very strictly to protecting rights that really do objectively, can objectively be shown to be, uh, to be uh, uh, firmly, rooted in, uh, firmly rooted legal protections in our nation's history. Um, that will mean two things. It will mean that the court will have very few substantive due process decisions in which they find for the new rights claimants in the future for the simple reason that the state and federal legislatures very rarely um, pass laws infringing on truly fundamental rights that are deeply rooted in our legal traditions. There's a reason why these things are deeply rooted in our legal traditions, which is that nobody violates them, or very rarely. So I think it would be very rare. Um, uh, the, other, the other thing that, that, that it would do would be to leave in place what the Supreme Court's incorporation doctrine under the 14th Amendment, which is a branch of substantive due process. And that means that the, the decisions, which are somewhat questionable, uh, under which the Supreme Court has applied the Bill of Rights to the states, I would leave alone. Those are substantive due process decisions. I think they can be uh, plausibly defended, um, but only plausibly. I think they're not clearly right. The one thing that would have to be done, though, I think, is that Roe v. Wade would have to be overruled. 
Um, I think you do have, a cho have to make a choice between the Glucksburg approach and Roe v. Wade. They just cannot be reconciled. And so I think Roe v. Wade and his progeny should be, uh, should be overruled. We have time for one more question. Perhaps Professor George should get it. Oh, uh, thanks, Keith. Uh, uh, Nelson, I want to make a comment and then uh, uh, a question. Uh, the comment is on Brett Scott, and I think you're absolutely right. And anybody who actually reads the Brett Scott opinion, there's not enough people do. It's actually hard to find in Facebook, which you probably know. It's very, very rarely included in Facebook. And when it is, it's very uh, sharply uh, cut back. As it has to be, since <laughs> the opinions are several hundred pages <laughs> long. Right, right. But remember that the term substantive due process isn't used in Lochner either. But right. if ever there was a substantive due right. process case, it's Lochner. Right. And it can't be simply that the 14th Amendment provides the uh, opportunity to introduce substantive due process, because the Fifth Amendment includes exactly the same language as applying against the federal government. So if you can do uh, substantive due process out of the 14th Amendment, interpreting the term liberty as actually uh, constituting a clause, so-called liberty clause, as Joe Biden was. Well, then you certainly do the same thing uh, as Tawny, in fact, did uh, in the Red Scott right. uh, opinion. Now, uh, the question is this, and I, I, it's one of these things that, that uh, people should do, but I'm going to do it anyway. You're a law legal scholar, a law professor. I'm going to invite you to be a sociologist mm -hmm. in order to, to try out a hypothesis. I've been trying to avoid that my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> in, in any uh, society, any Sometimes they've been partisan. Uh, but sometimes, and certainly today on a lot of issues, the division, the fundamental division, is elite popular. Issues break along an elite popular divide rather than a regional divide or a politically partisan divide or what have you. Well, here's the hypothesis. Looking across the sweep of our own history, and then looking at the history of other jurisdictions that have got a long enough history with judicial review uh, for us to be able to evaluate Ireland, uh, Germany, uh, a few other places. It looks to me as though courts overall in the long run will end up being friendly to, or at least a lot more friendly to, elite positions than legislatures will be. Typically, that means that a, um, a position like competitive federalism that lacks a constituency of any certainly lacks a constituency uh, in the elite sector of the population, uh, it's going to be left homeless uh, for most of the time. Now, that doesn't mean that in every case elite opinion will, opinion will carry the day with the courts, although I think in more, time, more often than not it won't. It, it, uh, it actually will. But it does mean that they're going to do better. You've got a better shot if, you, if your opinion lines up with elite opinion on a moral, every moral issue. You've got a better shot with the courts than you do with the legislature. So you're uh, going to uh, work there. What do you think? Um, well, I, th I, th I think there's 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 something to that. Um, I think though that, and I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head now. I think though that there's there's not a lot of reason to be encouraged by the behavior of Congress. Uh, with respect to competitive federalism. Um, I, I think for, for, for some, some of the reasons you suggest, you know, principled 
approach to federalism has very few friends. Yeah, it's homeless. That's what right. Um, now, I think that actually the Supreme Court is more likely, in the nature of the court, it's probably more likely than Congress to be, uh, over a range of time, to be a faithful uh, protector of competitive federalism, precisely because uh, the court is not exposed to the electoral pressures. You know, every time something gets to be a, a you know a popular issue, Congress is under pressure to to you know to give us a national solution. And we can see this, you know, with the Bush administration right now. Um, you know, they want national tort reform. They want national this, national that. The no Child Left Behind Act. There's more interference. In, so th there's all this kind of easy to gin up political pressure for national solutions that, 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 that creates a kind of almost unrelenting uh, kind, of, kind of pressure on Congress. If the Supreme Court uh, were, 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 were staffed with uh, better people than it is now, um, I think there's nothing in, in the, really in the nature of the institution quite so powerful that 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 there would be that pressure. Now there are the pressures, and the pressures are the ones I mainly the ones that I I suggested uh, during my talk, which is they socialize uh, with with the people for whom you know an anti-sodomy law just means you're from the Stone Age. You know, if, if to, to, to in any way be protecting like that just makes you intolerable in polite in polite company uh, for the people that they socialize with. And they know that the people they socialize with are the very people who are going to largely determine their historical reputations. So there is that pressure, but I don't think it's so much in the nature of the institution as, as it is in Congress. So I'm not sure that Congress is a better guardian. Well, maybe that there is none. And right. I wonder then if we're led, uh, I don't want to be led there, but I wonder if we are led to Jeremy Walgren's uh, position that if you allow the Campbell Center to work with judicial review at all, Uh, yeah, I, I think as a, as a matter of fact that that is that is simply very largely un, undeniable. Um, what the what the what the what the best kind of solution or ameliorative steps would be, uh, I'm not sure. If because you know people on one side of the debate, I mean, you go, go back to Marbury, right? Where, 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 where Chief Justice Marshall says, well, uh, Congress can't possibly have uh, the power to decide what the Constitution means, or it could do anything, right? Who's going to guard the guardians, right? And the, of course, answer is, well, us. Well, then, of course, the next question is, well, who's going to protect us from you, right? And so if there were some, if, if there were some, and, I, and that's what I constantly have to kind of, you know, 
focus my students on is who's going to protect us from the court. Um, but but if you but but that if if you talked about taking away the judi the power of judicial review, then then we really do have a very serious question about who's going to protect us from Congress um, and what is going to keep Congress within constitutional boundaries. So um, I. I, I, I'm not quite prepared to assume that we would be in a better world uh, over the long run if Congress were left completely unrestrained by judicial review than we are under, under the current system, given, of course, the, the, the correctness of your factual premises, which I think are correct. Well, there's clearly a lot more to uh, think about and talk about on these themes, and I hope you'll join us in the reception outside to uh, talk about some of them. Uh, before we uh, retire to the reception, though, I hope you will help me uh, thank uh, Professor Lawrence.